And now you might be wondering as we're starting this series as well, who was John, the guy who wrote this book? Uh, who is he? Uh, and so many people might wrongly assume that it's John the Baptist. Uh, and it's not. Je- Jesus' cousin, the guy that was the forerunner of Christ, that said, hey, everybody, Jesus is coming. And then Jesus came. Uh, it's not him. Uh, instead, it's a guy named John who was a disciple or a follower of Jesus. In fact, if you've seen the, uh, the show The Chosen or if you've seen uh, The Last Supper, uh, the, the famous painting, or if you've watched any number of movies about the life of Jesus, uh, there's those 12 guys that follow Jesus around everywhere, like his, his closest buddies. Uh, so John was one of those guys. In fact, John was part of uh, the, the smaller group, even within the 12, of Jesus' inner three. And so uh, John, he referred to himself actually in this book as the beloved disciple. And many people who study the Gospels, they, uh, they look on that as he refers to himself as that and, and see this, this sort of like older brother, younger, like kid brother sort of relationship between Jesus and John. Uh, that's, that's pretty fun. Uh, but that, that's kind of who, who wrote this book. And after Jesus died and rose from the dead, we see that he commissioned all of his disciples to go out and start preaching and teaching everywhere all that he had commanded them. And so John started doing that along with all the other disciples of Jesus going and sharing about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And John, as we see throughout church history, did this at great cost to himself. In fact, uh, a guy by the name of Tertullian, which is a great name if if you're pregnant or want to get pregnant, you have a kid, Tertullian, it's a strong name. Uh, He was an early Christian pastor and he wrote a book called The Prescription Against Heretics which is a great name for a book, uh, right? Like a doctor writes a prescription and gives it to you against whatever is ailing your body. He wrote it for whatever is ailing your soul to prevent you against heresies uh, getting into your soul. So uh, a great title for a book. Um, In this book, uh, he wrote around the year 200, and this is what he told us about John and how John, uh, what he walked through as as a follower of Christ. He said, John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil. You guys, getting plunged into boiling oil would be crazy. But for it to not hurt you or kill you in any way, like you pull that guy out of the, boor- out of the boiling oil, what do you do to him to try to kill him? You just, you, can't, you just send him away. So that's what they did. They tried to kill him. It doesn't work. You're like, this guy's unkillable. What do we do? We'll just maroon him on an island. Uh, and then that's where, that's where John actually spent the rest of his life. But why? Well, quite simply, John would not quit talking about Jesus. John's faith in Jesus cost him everything. And so as we're going to be walking through the contents of some of the book of of John, what we need to know is that John thought that these things were so important that he would willingly be thrown into burning oil and then be marooned on an island simply for his faith in what we're going to read about in this book. Needless to say, it's pretty important. Right? It's, it's pretty important. Not only that, but the number, the thousands, the millions of Christians that have read through the Gospel of John and come to believe in Jesus the way that John talks about Jesus, that have also laid down their own lives as a result of believing what John has written, has been thousands, hundreds of thousands of them. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, reading this book and coming to believe upon Jesus like this, you need to know it will also cost you everything absolutely everything in your life but it's worth it that's what i think john would say that he's writing this now he'd be like it's worth it it's worth it and i want to tell you that now it, it's also worth it. it it's worth it to give our lives to something that means something 
in, in sharing the good news of Jesus with other people is, is the most meaningful thing that you could possibly do with your entire life. So uh, I'm, I'm thankful to be walking through uh, the book of John together. Now, the, the first miracle that we're going to be talking about is uh, the miracle of the incarnation. Now you might be saying, well, Aaron, the, actually the first miracle in the book of John is when Jesus turns water into wine. And I would say, you're right. Uh, but there's, a, there's this huge miracle that happens in chapter one uh, that we kind of gloss over. I'm like, but this is really important, how, how God entered into human history. So uh, next week we're going to be covering uh, the miracle where Jesus turns water into wine. So bring your large barrels of water. Just kidding. Uh, just kidding. But that's what we're going to talk about next week. But, but as I was studying this past week, I came across a video, uh, a video actually, of a prominent Muslim teacher. And as I was listening to him, he was teaching a, a room full of probably hundreds of Muslims. And as he's, as he's talking about Jesus and talking about the claims of the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus claimed to be Jesus or claimed to be God, he, he looked at this large group of, of people and he said, you know, the interesting thing is that the Bible never teaches you that Jesus is God. Not anywhere. There is nowhere inside the Bible, the Christian Bible, that teaches you that Jesus is God. He said Christians just made that up. If it were, if someone could somehow find in the Bible where it said Jesus is God, he said... I would believe it. And, and as I listened to that, and I was prepping for today, I, I thought about leaving a comment on the video, but I was like, no one's going to read this. But as I thought about that, I, and I was prepping for it, it made me wonder, if someone asked you that, if, if you're here and you're a Christian, if someone said to you, can you, can, you, can you show me from this book, where does it actually say Jesus is God? It, it made me wonder, what would you, what would you say? Do you as a Christian know how to defend the most important thing that we believe to be true as Christians from God's word? And if you're like, actually, honestly, no, I don't. I, I believe it, but I, I don't know how to do that. My great encouragement is, well, today we're going to show you how. Uh, and if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're wondering, well, actually, I have that genuine question. Does it actually say Jesus is God? And if so, then I might believe it. Maybe. We're thankful that you're here. Uh, so, so that's what we're, our big uh, audacious goal is today, is to talk through three main things. So the three main premises we're going to be talking about today. First is that Jesus clearly believed he was God. Secondly, his enemies knew that he claimed this. And thirdly, Jesus' disciples came to believe it himself. And, and we could go all the way throughout the New Testament to do this, but instead we're going to simply fly over the entire Gospel of John. So if you haven't had a deep dive in the entire Gospel of John recently, we're about to do that. We're going to do a flyover of the entire book, talking about a couple of things. We're going to show how Jesus said that he, he was God. He claimed to be equal with God the Father, and then people got really angry at him. And we're going to do that a couple of times. Uh, and then we're going to deep dive into uh, John chapter 1 and just do it into a couple of verses and begin to lay a groundwork that will actually we will build on for the next nine weeks. So that's where we're going this morning. So let me pray for us uh, and, then, uh, and then we'll dive in. So Father, I pray for our time. I pray that you would use your word to transform us and to allow us to come to understand and believe that Jesus genuinely is the eternal God, the Son, and that by believing upon him that we might have life in his name. I pray for my Christian brothers and sisters who are thinking through this and wondering how would they defend this? What would they say? Where would they go? I pray that they would also be encouraged as we're walking through. 
And, and I pray, God, more than anything, that you would be glorified in our time together as we open your word. Please use your word as, as, uh, as a double-edged sword, piercing our hearts, convicting us of sin, and convincing us of the truthfulness of Christ. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, to let you know where we're going to land, we're going to land in John chapter 5, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, John chapter 19. Then we're going to come back to John chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you're really going to want to have that open and in front of you. I'm going to have some verses on the screen, but, but I want you to see this. I want you also, as a Christian, to be able to defend this and know where this is. Because this is a, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And we're also not going to dive deep into some of the healings that we're going to be talking about because that's what we're going to be doing in our miracles study. So I'm not going to go really deep into a lot of them, but, but kind of just do more of an overview. So if you want to open your Bible, we're going to start first in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. And this is a really familiar story if you've been around Christianity for a while. In fact, if you've read the Gospel of John in the last couple of months or years, it's one that just keeps getting brought up over and over and over again. It's, it's when Jesus heals a man who's an invalid of 38 years. He heals him, but he does so on the Sabbath. Right? And everyone freaks out and gets really angry at Jesus. Uh, and so that's what we're, we're going to see uh, here in a moment. Now, remember, it, Jesus does this. He heals him on the Sabbath. And this is the day when Jews ceased from their normal work to obey the command of God in order to keep this one day. And the problem, as John 5 explains, is that Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath. And we'll, we'll talk about that more later. But for now, let's look at verses uh, 15 to 17. It's kind of the end of the story. So Jesus said, healed the man. Uh, and then the man went away, it says in, in verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, we're going to stop there for a minute. That might seem like a really weird place to begin our study in talking about how Jesus claimed to be God. Right? You're looking at that and you're like, uh, Aaron, I don't see him saying that. Why are we starting here? And it's particularly because if we look at the response in the Jews, in the very next verse, we're going to see what they understood Jesus to be saying in verse 17. Look at me at verse 18. If it will go. Oh, it will not go. Oh, there we go. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. What does that say? making himself equal to God. So although in our natural ears, we might, we, or natural eyes, we might read that and say that and be like, Jesus wasn't claiming that. What is, his, what is his adversaries? When he said that, what did they say? Foul, right? Like you, you're claiming to be God and you cannot do that. So where did they get here? Well, well let's look at a few things worth noting. Firstly, is that they were seeking to kill Jesus. We saw because Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. Now, in reality, Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. Simply, he was refusing to obey a lot of the laws and commands that Israel's leaders had given about the Sabbath. And again, we're going to get more into that in the upcoming weeks. But Sabbath, in God's gracious design, was a gracious gift given by God to his people that they would trust in his provision for them. Don't work this one day. Trust me. Keep it just for worshiping him, spending time with God's people, diving into the word. Like, save it for that. Allow this one day to intentionally harm you from making any gain on this one day. 
And Sabbath was also a test of their faith. Would they trust that God would provide for them as they did so? And so there are very clear teachings from, Bible, from the Bible about keeping the Sabbath. But what the leaders uh, in Jesus' day had done is they took the very clear commands of God and they did what all religious people do. They start making other things around that thing so that you don't accidentally break that thing. Right? So they made laws over here that God never gave them. And they're like, if you do that law, shame on you. That's a sin. God is like, actually, that's not a sin. You made that up. And then not only that, they went further than that. They built another fence around that fence. And then they built another fence around that fence. So that the, their goal was they didn't want to actually break the command of God. And so they just built fence after fence after fence after fence after fence. And then they got angry when Jesus came along and didn't, didn't play by their rules. Jesus is like, no, actually, those fences are dumb. I will not, I, I'm not going to do your little man-made religion thing because I never gave these commands. Anyway, so, so Jesus' response to them was, my father is working until now, and I am working. So, so now, now that we understand this claim is, as the Jews said, him making himself equal with God, we're going to try to find out why. Now, to, to begin the argument, Jesus was, in effect, claiming that God himself, who he calls his father, didn't keep the, the Sabbath commands that they were also keeping, Jesus' indication here is that God himself was working on the Sabbath. God was taking care of his creation. God was maintaining things like ecosystems and gravity. For example, like imagine if God one, one day a week was just like, gravity doesn't exist, right? Like you would have no problem knowing what day of the week that was, right? You wake up and you're floating. You're like, oh, God gave up the thing today. He's Sabbathing. Whoa, we're floating. Right. Not only that, but what we see in God's word is if uh, in, in Job chapter 34, verse 15, is if, if God were to gather his spirit, his breath back into himself, that all of us would immediately return back to dust. So God is actively and proactively keeping all of our body systems and all the ecosystems and all things constantly moving. And if he quit for a moment, if he Sabbath from doing everything for a moment, everything would just collapse and it would be over. So, so Jesus' indication here is, is that the Father doesn't do that, and they rightly recognize that. They, they have no problem with that. Um, they clearly understand that God the Father is working even on the Sabbath. But Jesus' main point here is, just as the Father is working, so am I. And that's where they get very, very angry at Jesus. Because he starts claiming that the same factors that apply to God also apply to him. One pastor explained it this way. He said, whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation also justify Jesus's actions. So in so doing, what Jesus is doing, he's claiming that he shared the exact same rights and the exact same privileges as Yahweh, the creator God over all. Something that no human has claimed to unless they're claiming to be equal with God. And the Jews understood exactly what Jesus meant by this. And that's why it says they were seeking all the more to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath and he was calling God his own father. Now, throughout the history of Judaism, Jews would often collectively refer to God as our father. But a Jew would never call him my father. There is a closeness of relationship there that no Jew would ever get near with a 10-foot pole. Like they're, they're leaving that statement alone. 
And Jesus walks right into it, claiming God is my father. It, it insinuates this closest of relationship that would be blasphemy in the minds of the Jews. And we're going to get into that in a variety of ways in the upcoming weeks. But for now, I want us to simply to see that Jesus is claiming a relational connection here between him and Yahweh God. When the Jews hear all of these things he's saying, coupled with uh, Jesus' assertion that he shares the same rights and the same privileges as Yahweh, they rightfully and undoubtedly know what Jesus is saying. It is crystal clear in his mind. Jesus was making himself equal with God. And that's why they got so angry. So although you and I might look at this immediately and be like, I don't know if Jesus claimed that. The Jews heard it and they said, oh, you better believe he is. And we hate him for it. And because of this, we see the Jews were trying to kill him. The irony here, too, is so amazing because these Jewish men are offended at the wrong thing. They're offended at the wrong thing. For one, Jesus was not a man who was claiming to be God. Rather, he is God, the eternal son, who has humbled himself and become obedient to the will of the father by putting on flesh and stepping into time. See, they thought Jesus was exalting himself. Friends, Jesus is not exalting himself by simply saying who he is. And his whole life is this condescension where he's listening and obeying the, the will of God, the father. He's, he's not exalting himself at all here. He is humbling himself. But they don't understand that yet. Many of them will. Many of them, thousands of them will, will turn to Christ one day. But right now, they're very angry at him. Very angry. And John 5 is kind of the first place where we see Jesus himself claim to be equal with God the Father. And his enemies rightly understood it. They knew what he meant. But our second example of this, if you want to look over, flip over with me to John chapter 8. Um, Verses 39 to 59, we're not going to have time to walk through the entire argument in this section of Jesus. But if you want to skim verses 39 to 47, what is the, what is the heading over verse 39 in your Bible say? Anybody yell it out of me. Yell it. You are of your father, the devil. So you don't have to really read that entire section to know Jesus' main punchline. Uh, right? You know what I mean? And so uh, you get the main idea of what he's talking about and what he's saying to the religious leaders of his day. You see, in this, in this section, if you were to read all of it, you'd find out that Jesus has been explaining to these religious leaders that the reason that they refuse to believe upon him is because they, surprise, surprise, are not the children of God, which is a massive cut to their egos. See, the Jewish people prided themselves on being the children of God. They are the physical, actual descendants of Abraham, and they follow the law given by Moses, and they have the exact same faith as Abraham. They believed God's promises. They are heirs of the promise. They were God's children. But, Jesus explains, if this were actually true, they would believe upon Jesus. But they refused to. He even said in John chapter 5, verse 46, that all of Moses' writings pointed to him as the fulfillment of it. So if they listened to Moses, they would have believed upon Jesus. But, he says, you are not children of God. You are children of the devil. Whew! Basically, he's calling them the, you know, the unwed mother offspring of Satan. It's the most politically correct way that I can say that. Uh, but it would have been as offensive as if I had said the other phrase to them. This would have been highly offensive. Jesus means for it to. They think that they're the children of God and they're rejecting God's Messiah. They're looking him in the face and they're rejecting who he is. God has come to his own people and they're saying, you're not our God. And he's like, oh, yes, I am. And they're like, no, you're not. 
There's this tension that they're walking through, especially in this section. And then he gets to verse 56 in this section, if you want to look with me in it. it says, he says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He said, if you're children of Abraham, you, you would do it, Abraham. Did Abraham rejoice that he would see my day? In fact, Jesus assures them he did see it, that he saw the day of Jesus and was glad. But the Jews are really bewildered at this and they're offended at Jesus' argument. They take his words at really surface level and they look at him and they just see this guy who's like 30, 32 years old. And they, they look at him and they say, you're not even 50 years old yet. What do you mean Abraham saw your day and rejoiced in it? Bro, you are on the crazy town bus. Like, you're nuts, man. And Jesus, standing in the temple of Jerusalem, one of the holiest places of the Jews, opens his mouth and makes one of the most stunning claims that we have recorded in the Bible that he speaks. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you're newer to the Bible, the phrase in Greek here is ego eimi. It is not Jesus claiming simply that he does exist. He's not saying, I think, therefore I am. This is not what he's saying. No, instead, this phrase, ego eimi, I am, is the very name of God that was given to Moses in the wilderness before he goes into Egypt and God saves his people from slavery. Do you remember that conversation in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14? Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your father sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus, in answering these men, he takes upon his lips the very name of God given to God's people. And he takes it for himself. Friends, if what he's been saying so far all along in the Gospel of John has not been clear enough, which there is mounting amount of evidence and things that we're not talking about right now, but if it has not been clear enough, if Jesus, uh, you know, they're, they're reading through, they're listening to him, they're, they're listening to what he's saying, or you're reading through this text on your own, if you, if you are wondering if he would just be clear enough, this is where he stunningly uses the exact covenant name of God and applies it to his, himself. Friends, if Jesus was not God, if he was not the great I am, then this would have been blasphemy. Blasphemy. But if Jesus is the eternal God, the son who has stepped into time humbly to live and reveal the character and nature of God and then to stand condemned in our place as sinners, if he has come genuinely to be the suffering servant of Isaiah, then this is him simply explaining that though the Jews look at him and simply see a man, he is much, much more than that. Friends, there's no mistaking this audacious claim of Jesus in this text. There's no other way to read this. If you don't believe any of the claims from Jesus' followers, you think his enemies were kind of like whack and maybe they just didn't comprehend anything, Jesus himself here understands very, very much so, and this is his clearest, most glaring claim from the entire Bible. Again, don't take my word for this. Simply look at what happens next. Look at how the Jews respond when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Doing what Leviticus 24, 16 right here explains. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native. When, when he blasphemed the name, he shall be put to death. See, the Jews are shocked and horrified and they're angered at Jesus' words. Jesus is saying things that you cannot say. Only God can say this, and they will not have it any longer. He deserves to die. 
So they pick up stones and they're going to kill him. But Jesus, who is the God who created their very eyes and their minds, somehow hides himself from them so that they cannot see him. And he just walks out of the temple. It, it's one of the craziest things. Like, does someone just bend down, pick up a rock and look up and he's gone? Or like, are you staring right at him and all of a sudden he's just gone? You're like, where did he go? I don't know. They're so angry. They just want to murder him. And all of a sudden, they just let him go. He just walks out. Friends, what a display of what he has just claimed to be true. Also, it's interesting to note here that we don't know why Jesus did this, why he just left. But we do know that this isn't the time or the place or the means of death by which Jesus will die. His time is not yet. And this is not how he will die. Truly, as he'll say later, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I have every right to pick it back up of my own accord, too. Right now, he's like, I'm not laying it down yet, and you're not taking it from me. So he just, he, just, he just leaves. A third example of this we have is in John chapter 10. As Jesus uh, is approached by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, as recorded in John chapter 10, verse 24, they ask him really plainly if he really is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, who they're waiting for, the anointed one of God, who will usher in the kingdom of God. And Jesus explains to them that he has told them very plainly. His words have been as clear as a bell, and the works, the miracles and signs that he does bear witness about him as well. And, And then Jesus explains that although these things have been abundantly clear, these men don't believe that he is the Christ because they are not part of the sheep that the Father has given to him. Their blindness and their inability to comprehend who Jesus is, it's not because they aren't smart enough or good enough, but rather they have not been given eyes to see or minds to comprehend by God himself. They have not been given to Jesus by the Father. And Jesus assures them if they had been given to him, if they were part of his flock, his sheep, his people, they would have seen his works and heard his words and they would have believed in him. And in this exchange, Jesus makes another one of these earth-shattering statements to the, to the ears of the Jews. Look with me in, in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. And when Jesus clearly articulated this to these men, they knew exactly what he was claiming. They knew that Jesus was, in their estimation, blaspheming again, claiming that he and the Father share the same divine will, the same divine task, in a way that nobody can claim to do unless they are equal with God. And again, we know they understood Jesus correctly because look at me in John chapter 10, verse 31. What do they do? They pick up stones again to stone him. Again, Leviticus 24, 16. You've blasphemed. We will now kill you. But this time, Jesus doesn't simply do like a Jedi mind, mind trick and just disappear. No, this time, Jesus doesn't hide at all. Jesus squarely stands his ground as these people just anger in their faces, holding these stones, waiting to just throw them at him. He he looks at them and he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Friends, again, these Jewish leaders very clearly understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Very, very clearly. He was not a man, however, who was making himself God. But remember, he was God who had put on flesh and stepped into time. But clearly they didn't understand that at all. 
And these three examples are really clear and they can't be denied. Jesus' words are very clear. If, that, if I had had that man around me, I would have said, can I show you? Do you, have, do you have time? I can open up the Bible and we can walk through this together. But alas, it was a video. Uh, so it's not going to work. But, but Jesus' words are so clear here and his enemies understood him so clearly. Jesus believed he was God and he taught this to others. And his enemies understood that he was making these claims and that it was exactly why they wanted him dead. Thus, at the end of the book, chapter 19, we see the culmination of their desire and their anger at Jesus. It bubbles up and bubbles over as they demand his death from Pilate, the Roman overlord of their area. We see, if you want to look at, uh, at John chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus was questioned by Pilate and then flogged. Remember, that is a terrible beating which had been known to kill some people simply from walking through it. Because it's just grotesque brutality. And Pilate thought that this beating would be enough to quell the anger of the Jewish leaders against Jesus. He humiliated him and he flogged him. And to make fun of Jesus in all of his bloody, beaten up mess, Pilate put a crown of thorns on his head and covered him in a purple robe. Showing, this guy's a joke. You think he's a king? He's not a king. And Pilate brought him out and paraded him in front of him. And when the Jews saw him, they cried out in verse 6, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate looked at them and he said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Jesus has done nothing wrong, nothing deserving death here. But, look at me in verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Friends, clearly Jesus' enemies knew what Jesus was claiming about so publicly about himself. This is why they wanted him dead. Jesus was claiming to share in the rights and authority of God. And if this was not true, he was committing blasphemy and he did deserve to die. Now, in all these situations that we mentioned, especially at this moment right here where Jesus is about to be crucified for claiming to be equal with God. Let me just tell you, if Jesus wasn't claiming that he was God, this would have been the perfect time to come out and say, no, just kidding. Like you thought I was, I wasn't claiming to be God. No, I was just saying Oh, you know, I love God. I, I'm not claiming to be God. Right? If you're about to die for that and you don't genuinely believe it's true, that's the moment where you're like, no, I've been flogged already. I'm going to go home, have tea, sleepy time tea, and you know, I'm just going just to hang out the rest of the night, try to get better for the next couple of weeks or something. But notice, notice that Jesus never does that. He never does that. John chapter 5, 8, 10, here, Jesus could have corrected their misunderstanding if indeed it was a misunderstanding, but it wasn't. Jesus here is claiming to be equal with God the Father, and that's why the religious elite wanted to kill him. This was blasphemy if it was not true. Claiming to be God if you are not God is blasphemy, and under the law to make such a claim is the punishment of death. But Jesus clearly believed and taught that he was God. So to anyone who might say to you, okay, well, Jesus never claimed to be God or the Bible doesn't teach that. What it demonstrates, friends, is, is that we haven't paid very much close attention to what the Bible actually says in it. Or maybe we just don't have eyes to see it yet. See, see friends, all of us were born into this world as broken rebels against God who deserve nothing before him except God's just judgment against our many sins. All of us, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, were born into this world blinded by Satan to the things of God. We were all born as children of wrath, deserving nothing from God except for God's unending judgment upon us for all time, conscious torment. This is what we all naturally deserve as people born into this world. But for those of you who are Christians, God has given you new eyes to see. 
He's given you a mind to comprehend so that when you read and study and look at God's word, God the Spirit is working inside of you, helping you to understand and come away looking at God's word, corrected and trained in righteousness, rebuked and and loving the things of God. So so friends, if if you're here and you're like, I don't see that yet, I would say just stick with us. Stick with us. Our, Our hope and our prayer is that as we continue to open up God's word with you, that you would see that it is true. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, know that as you're walking with people who aren't Christians and you're trying to walk through and explain some things like this, these are, these are great texts. And this is just the book of John. We could have gone throughout a lot of the rest of the New Testament. We're just sticking right in John. But, but there's, there's, there's a lot of great evidence that we have and a lot of great hope for us as Christians. It helps strengthen what we know to be true as followers of Jesus. Last thing I'll say in this, in this area, too, is that there are two ways that the Gospel of John clearly demonstrates that Jesus does receive worship as God. That was one of the things that I, I listened to from, from that Muslim guy. He's like, also, Jesus never received any worship. He just told you to worship God only. But right here in John, two ways I'm going to show you. So look with me in John chapter 9. We read here about the miracle of a man who was born blind, and Jesus heals him by putting mud on his eyes and telling him to go to a little pool and wash himself. And it's this amazing story, and we have an entire sermon devoted to it later on in the series. Uh, but, but regardless of say, this man is miraculously healed from his blindness. Jesus finds the man. Look at me in John chapter 9, 35 to 38. Jesus finds the man, and he asks him. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is a very beautiful text from Daniel chapter 7 that I won't get into, but you can study it. It's beautiful. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the, and the man who was born blind responds, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. Jesus basically says, I am the Son of Man. And the man responds, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. Now, friends, the interesting thing here is Jesus doesn't condemn the man for worshiping him. Wouldn't that have been a great moment? No, no, no. Don't worship me. That's what the angels do. When they falsely get worshipped in the Bible, they're like, no, no, no. No, I'm an angel. Don't worship me. Paul and Barnabas, when they're in Acts chapter 14, they start to kind of build offerings and try to worship them. They're like, no, no, no. We're mere mortals. Do not worship us. Worship Jesus. Jesus here doesn't do that. Jesus receives the praise and adoration and worship of this man and does not condemn him for it. And neither does John in writing this. John rightly says, yes, this was good. Dear friend, Jesus deserves worship and he receives it. And then if you want to look with me at John chapter 20, verse 27 and 29 as well. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead. He comes to his disciples and he shows them that he really had raised from the dead bodily, victoriously. And he shows them his hands and his side to prove it really was him, that he really was alive again. And we find out that poor Thomas, poor Thomas, he's not there. I don't know where he is. He's gone. He comes back and all the guys are like, Jesus was here. We saw his hands and his side. He's like, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I have to see it for myself. He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But praise God, eight days later, Jesus came and he stood among them and appearing in the room with them. But this time, Thomas was there and Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. See them. Put, put your hand, put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe which a more direct translation would be, do not be an unbeliever, but be a believer. That's a great line. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See, friends, if Jesus never claimed to be God, this would have been a great moment to stop Thomas. 
John would have written a little thing and said, Thomas didn't understand yet that Jesus wasn't really God. He was just a man. He didn't say that. Jesus didn't stop him either. Instead, the, we get to the end right here, and this is the model example of us, of what we should all do in reading through the Gospel of John, in seeing what Jesus does, the miracles that he has, and what Jesus says, and then his life, death, burial, and resurrection. At the end of it, our response naturally should be, my Lord and my God, and fall on our faces and worship of him because he's worthy. See, and, and friends, Thomas wasn't alone in this assertion that Jesus is his Lord and his God. All of the disciples of Jesus believe that, and all Christians from the very beginning have believed this as well. Look, look at me at the very beginning of the book of John. Let's see how he describes it. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, this phrase, in the beginning, is, is a really interesting phrase. It reminds us of two things. One, it reminds us of another one of the Gospels particularly the Gospel of Mark. If you remember the Gospel of Mark, it opens with these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Mark starts talking about John the Baptist coming and preparing the way, and then Jesus's ministry, of course. Uh, and one, one pastor noted about this, that Mark tells you kind of about the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. But what John is doing here, he wants you to show, to show you that the starting point of the Gospel can be traced back not to when John the Baptist entered the scene or not when Jesus started baptizing, but rather that the, the ministry of Jesus, the starting point of the gospel, actually can be traced back to from before the beginning of the entire universe. So, so the second reference that we hear, see here is also to the book of Genesis. Remember Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See an amazing parallel here of exactly what John is saying and what he's claiming to be true about Jesus See, John wants us to think back to from before the beginning of creation, from before God created anything. This is like the best origin story in the world. I love origin stories. Like, where did they come from? People like make it all up. And I'm like, I don't care. I love it. Uh, this, however, is true. This is the best origin story because it's true. And, and so what happened from before the foundations of the world? And, and this is re revealed progressively throughout the Bible. But John, in reflecting back on Jesus' claims and ministry, death and resurrection in Old Testament texts, he looks back at creation, rightly recognizing that Jesus has firstly always existed alongside of God the Father and God the Spirit, that we have one God that we know is three persons, better known to us as the Trinity. Maybe you've heard that before. You've seen like the, the symbol thing. I don't know why I did this. I think because like, we have tattoos of it. I don't know. Uh, but but when, we, when we read John's words, what we're doing is we're being thrown back in time from before anything was created. And what happened from before creation? Well, in the beginning was the Word. And we're going to stop there and recognize that John's claim here is that the Word, which we'll see in a moment that he's going to say is uh, Jesus himself, that the Word was already in existence from before the beginning of anything, in eternity past. That, that there was never a time when Jesus was not in existence. He always has been. He always will be. He is uncreated. He is from before the foundations of the world. In the same way that God the Father and God the Spirit are not created, Jesus is not created. The Word was there from before the beginning of time as we know it into eternity past. Not only was the Word there in the beginning, but notice as well this next phrase, the Word was with God. And the word with is really important because it means from the beginning, from before creation, that there was God and there was the Word. That's what the word with means, right? If you go with me somewhere, guess where we go? 
somewhere together. That's what it means, right? We're, we're together. But, but in this, this word pros here means that they are to or toward one another. It denotes that there is a face-to-face relationship between God and the word. There is an equality here. This is what this word pros means. John also writes that the word was God. And the Greek here is really important, theos onho logos. And so what John is doing, he's setting up a distinction, but also showing us sameness. There is a distinction between God the Father and God the Son, right? God the Father is not God the Son. God the Father is not God the Spirit. God the Son is not God the Spirit. God the Son is not God the Father. There's distinction, and yet there's similitude. There's sameness as well. So, so we would describe that as Christians. There's one God that knows three persons, but there's one God. So very clearly, he's saying God is God, and God was there in the beginning, and the word, Jesus, is God, and Jesus is there with God, also in the beginning, and he is God. And this is really important in Christian theology, our beliefs about God, because we do not believe that Jesus was somehow created by God the Father and then somehow became God. That is Mormonism. That is a deadly poison that creates a false Jesus that will not save and will send you to hell. This is not what we believe. That is a dangerous heresy that has led thousands of people away from worship of the true God and led them to worship demons. Friends, we, we need to run away from, from that. It's dangerous for people's souls. And all this means as well that from before God created anything that exists, that God existed. As far as we know from, from just this one scripture, that there are two persons. But we'll see as, uh, as we walk through the Gospel of John, there's also God the Spirit as well. But the main emphasis in this section is that from before the foundations of the world, that God the Father and God the Son coexisted. They were co-eternal and share in all of the divine attributes. This is important because when we see Jesus enter into human history, we're not seeing a fellow creation stepping into time and then suffering and then standing condemned in our place. What we're not seeing when Jesus dies is some form of divine child abuse where God abuses his child so that you can have salvation. No, no, no. What what we are seeing is God himself, who we have sinned against, laying humanity alongside of himself and stepping into time. That the God who we have offended lays down his own life for us. God stands condemned, facing his own just judgment in our place. And then God picks back up his life again and saves us as his people. This is what we see in the ministry of Jesus. And these things are very important for Christians. These things are our, our, our life as Christians. This is our hope. This is, this is what we believe to be true. This is what we love. This is, this is what we see in God's word. As one theologian explained, John intends that this whole gospel should be read in light of those things. Indeed, the, the deeds and words of Jesus, he said, are the deeds and the words of God. And if that's not true, this whole book is blasphemous. It's blasphemous. Again, this is why these things cost John everything. This is why he gets dumped into a boiling vat of oil. And God miraculously saves him. Harpooned on an island. And then we move to to verse 2. We verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Again, this is a repetition of that first line. But John wants it to be indelibly clear to us. Not to misunderstand anything. And John here, as Don Carson explains, is working backwards. He's saying, in effect, the word who is God is the very one of whom I have also said that he was in the beginning and he's with God. And then John explains something really amazing to us. Look at me in verse 3. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The beautiful thing here that, that John is telling us right here from the beginning is that all things were made through Jesus. Jesus makes all things. He is the agent of creation. And in understanding the different roles and functions within the Trinity, we understand that God the Father plans and purposes all things. God the Son accomplishes the plans and purposes of God the Father. God the Spirit gives life to all that God the Son does for the glory of God the Father. So thus in creation, God the Father plans and purposes it. God the Son, Jesus, creates what is there. And God the Spirit gives life to all of it. Also, Christian, think of your salvation. Who planned it? God the Father. Who stood condemned in your place and lived a perfect life in your place? God the Son. Who applies that into your life and gives you a mind to comprehend and eyes to see and not a new soft heart and gives you the faith to believe any of that anyway? God the Spirit. Right? So, so there's, this is really important for us as, as Christians. And, and here this is really important to see that all things are made through Jesus. To clarify this further, he then has that second line, without him was not anything made that has been made. In case there was any doubt, you're like, well, what about this? He made that. What about this? He made that. My boys ask me. They're like, well, did God create that Lamborghini over there? No. But God made the people and gave them the ingenuity, and they made it. He let them make it. He could have said no, uh, but God God allowed the systems and structures to be able to make it. So in a way, yes. And they're like, come on, Dad. Uh, But... That's, that's a different story for a different day. Anyway, verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcoming. And I love this verse 5 specifically. It summarizes everything that we're going to see in the Gospel of John. Darkness, as we will see, is not simply the absence of light, but rather is the presence of dark evil. And what Jesus has done, he has come into the world to shine the light of the Gospel, God's grace, into the world. And the world will hate Christ. Remember that, John chapter 3? The world hates the light of Christ because they love their dark deeds. And this is eventually going to lead to Jesus' death where darkness will try to overcome the light. But it can't. John lets you know in in verse 5 right here, hey, this story is going to get dark. It's going to get super dark. But don't worry, the light is going to win. That's a good thing to know as you're walking through, like you're walking through like a scary movie. You're like, hey, at the end, everyone's still alive. Like someone starts to tell you a story of like something that happened to them as a kid and they like almost died. And you're like, but, but I mean, you're alive. So, so I know you're fine. Uh, all right. And that's kind of what, what we see in, in verse five. Now let's skip down to verse 14. And it's here where if we have been uh, confused whether Jesus really is the word or not, these fears will be quenched. John writes, and the word became flesh. And this word became literally means he put on. So, so the word that was in the beginning, that was with God, that was God, who is the agent of creation, and in him was the light and the life of men who shines in the darkness. And, and we have great confidence the darkness will not overcome it. This word put on flesh and bone and stepped into time. What we have here is John affirming unambiguously that God became man. That's what we mean when we talk about the miracle of the incarnation. If you're a a fan of eating chili, chili con carne, that's where you throw a little meat in it. So carne, meat, so it's where God enfleshed himself. Jesus laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time, the creation that he made. Can you imagine that if you're in IT or if you ever played the game The Sims or any video game that you like, you could jump into into the world and be like, I made you. This is what Jesus has done here. He's like, I just let you know, I made you. I made this whole world uh, and I'm God. This is what Jesus has done. He is made in every way, in every regard like us, except for the state of our souls, which are sinful and from birth detest the things of God and want to worship ourselves. Jesus wasn't born with, with that. 
because his whole desire is to please the Father. But Jesus was pleased to dwell with us. So just as God's presence was with his people in the wilderness wanderings in the tent, and just as God tabernacled among his people in the Old Testament, just as the temple was God's own presence with his people, so also God has chosen to dwell amongst his people in a very more personal way, in a way where God moves into the neighborhood. God enfleshes himself and walks into time. And Jonathan assures us as well that we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we look at Jesus, what we're seeing is nothing other than the full glory of God on display. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the glory of God. He is God's self-disclosure. Or as Jesus explains, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. John chapter 14, verse 19. So from all of this, what we see is Jesus claimed to be God, that the religious elites of his day knew that he believed this and taught this and hated him for it. And Jesus' disciples also came to believe that Jesus was God. Many of them laying down their own lives and being murdered for their belief that salvation from sin was found in no other name but the name of Jesus. Friends, I want to encourage us today that Jesus deserves our worship. He's not simply a good man, He is not simply a good prophet. If he claimed these kind of things and taught people to believe in him and it was a lie, if he claimed to be equal with God the Father and it was a lie, Jesus should not be trusted and we should not say he's a good man. He either needs to be locked up in a padded room, given meds, something, but he doesn't need to be worshipped. But friend, Jesus was not lying. He was not lying. His words are very clear. He taught people to depend upon his death in their place so they could be forgiven for their sins. And he received worship. Friends, if he lied about this, he isn't a good man. He's not a kind man. He's an evil man. And we should reject him. But he told the truth. So we should worship him. Fall at his feet. And as Christians, we place our faith and trust that Jesus is worthy of worship. There's only one name given under heaven by which we can be saved, and it's Jesus. It's the only name. And so throughout the entire miracle study, studies and series that we're doing as we study the Gospel of John together, we're going to be seeing how all these miracles that Jesus performed are like signposts that point back to this. They point back to the truthfulness of who he is. He is God with us. And Jesus came not that we might simply know him, but that, we might ultimately, that he might ultimately stand condemned in our place and suffer the consequences of our sin our divine treason against him. He has come to pay our debt. God has come after us, which is good news. Friend, God is not wanting you to somehow measure up today. He's not saying do enough good deeds, do enough religious works, and somehow maybe if you're good enough, I'll be kind to you. No, no, no. God wrapped skin and bone around himself, entered into time and said, you will never be good enough. I will be good enough for you. And then he lived the life you should have lived, always obeying all the commands of God the Father. And then he suffered and died in your place, taking all of the righteous wrath of God on your behalf and suffered and died. He took an eternity of suffering upon himself that you might have his righteousness given to you. Friends, this is astonishing what he has done. What God has done for you is astonishing. Today, friend, don't harden your heart like Thomas did. Don't harden your heart like Thomas did. Rather, listen to Jesus' words and take them for yourself. Don't be an unbeliever, but be a believer. Today, come to Jesus. God has come after you to save you. Today, 
Come and profess and believe him as your God and your king. Believe in your heart that God rose Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. Let's pray.